Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesme. All right, so Jenny, what is it that we wanted to uh, delve into covering today? So at Bellevue, and I'm sure in a lot of other emergency departments, we see a tremendous amount of alcohol withdrawal. So as part of our talks block this month, we had a talk on alcohol from one of our talks faculty, Danny Lagasse. I thought we could talk about that. Swami, now you have been at Bellevue for a while now. Do you feel like an alcohol withdrawal master? Oh, absolutely. We are an alcohol withdrawal center of excellence. In fact, (laughs) we are a center of excellence for all alcohol care. Now, obviously, alcohol withdrawal is a major problem, as you cited. It has been estimated that among the general population, probably about 5% of people are going to experience some alcohol withdrawal symptoms. Now, at Bellevue, I think we have about 30 to 45 alcohol withdrawal admissions every month. So that's a huge number. So let's start by talking about why the withdrawal happens in the first place. So alcohol is a CNS depressant. It simultaneously enhances inhibitory tone and inhibits excitatory tone. So essentially, it induces an insensitivity to GABA so that more inhibitor is required to maintain a baseline. This means that as people become tolerant to alcohol, they maintain arousal at higher and higher doses of alcohol. More inhibitor is required to become inhibited. The other pathway involves glutamate. Glutamate is an excitatory amino acid that is inhibited by alcohol. So when someone chronically drinks, their body increases the number of glutamate receptors to help maintain a normal state of arousal. After these changes take place in the CNS, abrupt cessation of alcohol leads to decreased inhibition and increased excitation of the CNS and causes the classic withdrawal picture that we see in the ED. So these patients are going to present with symptoms of CNS hyperactivity. They're going to have insomnia, tremulousness, anxiety, palpitations, maybe some GI upset, and headache is common as well. You're going to see patients that appear tremulous. They have tongue fasciculations, maybe diaphoretic. They're going to be tachypnic, tachycardic, and hypertensive. And sometimes they can even be a little hyperthermic. These symptoms are usually seen within six hours of the patient's last drink, but they can appear in just a few hours or even up to five to seven days later. It's important to note that in chronic drinkers, these symptoms can present even when the patient still has an elevated blood alcohol level. Now, personally, Jenny, I have seen a patient with an alcohol level of 300 that was in florid withdrawal. So I can only imagine where this guy lives on a normal basis. So this is important in dealing with consultants and admitting providers because they're going to kind of want to know. With the patients withdrawing at an alcohol level of 300, it's going to get worse as they continue to metabolize their alcohol. Those patients typically are going to need a higher level of care. And again, we see this pretty frequently. Yeah, so that's kind of the classic and usually the most common presentation, which are those basic withdrawal symptoms. But there are other withdrawal syndromes as well. The first are the alcohol withdrawal seizures or rum fits. In this situation, a patient has a seizure as part of their withdrawal. This usually is one single seizure that occurs 24 to 48 hours after the last drink. Alcohol withdrawal rarely results in status epilepticus, so if you have a patient that continues to seize, think of other possible causes such as a concomitant benzo withdrawal or some other seizure disorder. Yeah, absolutely. So while withdrawal seizures are relatively common in patients who are withdrawing, I think it's pretty reasonable to get a non-con head CT on all of those patients because you're going to find the subdural, you're going to find the bleed or the mass. Absolutely. Another one of the alcohol withdrawal symptoms to know about is the alcoholic hallucinosis. Now, this one's tricky because people often confuse it with delirium tremens or DTs, but they're not the same thing. 
alcoholic hallucinosis is the development of hallucinations within 12 to 24 hours of alcohol cessation. It typically resolves in about 24 to 48 hours, which is when the DTs can start to occur. These hallucinations are usually visual, and the patients usually have specific hallucinations, but are otherwise normally oriented and have normal vital signs. So in contrast to that, the patient with DTs will have hallucinations, but they will also be disoriented and have the hemodynamic instability that gets people pretty nervous. They will have tachycardia, hypertension, maybe hyperthermia, diaphoresis, they'll be agitated. They'll probably be really, really agitated. (laughs) (laughs) DTs usually occur between 48 and 96 hours or so after abstinence, and they can last from one to five days. And these are the patients you typically see are often grabbing at things that don't actually exist. And again, that alteration of mental status is key. It's not just that they're seeing things. They also don't know where they are, who they are, what's going on. Patients at greater risk for developing DTs are those that have had them before and those who have significant alcohol levels when they develop their withdrawal symptoms. Patients who have had a longer period of abstinence also at an increased risk and those that are older than 30 or have chronic medical conditions. And again, if they've had DTs before, that's usually the biggest indicator that they may have it again. We teach our residents very early in intern year and even our medical students the important questions to ask a patient coming in with alcohol withdrawal symptoms. We want to know if they have any history of withdrawal seizures or DTs, whether they've had to stay in the ICU for their withdrawal, whether they've had to be intubated for their withdrawal. All of these things will change the risk category in our minds and help to guide management. Yeah, DTs are very dangerous. They have a high mortality rate somewhere between like 5 and 20%. These patients are always pretty hypovolemic, uh, probably because they're sweating, they're tachypnic, they're tachycardic. They may have electrolyte abnormalities. They could have low potassium, low magnesium, low phosphate, and they also may have increased risk of some cardiac dysrhythmias and seizures. It's bad, bad, bad. Yeah, it's those electrolyte abnormalities that often will get these patients in trouble and they get to be really vigilant on. So let's get to management. The first thing is that you want to make sure that you're dealing with alcohol withdrawal and only alcohol withdrawal. If you have a patient presenting with altered mental status, abnormal vital signs, you got to do a careful history and exam to rule out other causes such as trauma or infection. Once you've ruled out any other causes of the patient's presentation and you've addressed any other comorbid concerns, the focus of treatment is on fixing the symptoms and correcting the metabolic and vital sign abnormalities. The key treatment here are the benzos. So Swami, I know there are different benzos used in different shops. Give us your take on the benzo situation. Well, I like diazepam or Valium, and that's what we use almost exclusively. The reason why we've always liked diazepam in our place is that diazepam has active metabolites that stay in the system. It tends to protect the patient a little bit when they leave our care and go to the floor or go to step down or go to the unit, whereas lorazepam or Ativan does not. Uh, Typically, if you're talking about 10 milligrams of diazepam, the equivalent is somewhere in the one to two milligrams of lorazepam. And I'm not going to tell you that you can't use lorazepam. You can. We just have a lot of experience with diazepam. It's what our toxicologists prefer. And so we use it. But you're right. Different people use different things. If you're comfortable using escalating doses of lorazepam, that's totally fine. But we do prefer diazepam in our place. So treatment generally takes the form of a symptom-triggered therapy. There are calculators that can help you with this. Usually people look at the CEWA calculator, and your hospital probably has a protocol for this and also probably for the benzos that they want you to use. So you should familiarize yourself with that. Basically, the patient is assessed for symptoms every 10 to 15 minutes and treated with IV benzos until the symptoms are controlled. 
that reassessment is really key. These aren't patients where you can just give them a dose and walk away and come back a couple hours later. You need to be on top of them until you've controlled the symptoms. Don't simply titrate your benzodiazepine to heart rate. This is a big pitfall that I see happen all the time. The patient may be tachycardia from things other than the withdrawal, like, I don't know, a GI bleed or pneumonia or pulmonary embolism. I typically titrate my benzodiazepines until the patient is calm and sleepy, but easily arousable. If they're in that state, that easily arousable but sleepy state, and they're still tachycardic, something else is going on. This brings us to another critical point, which is to always look for the underlying cause of their withdrawal. Chronic drinkers occasionally will simply stop drinking out of choice or because they ran out of money, but often they've got something else going on. Pneumonia, pancreatitis, an MI, sepsis, or an intracranial bleed that could be the cause of their drinking cessation. Benzos, again, are going to be first-line therapy, but there may be other meds that we have to use here as well. There's a cross-tolerance in chronic alcohol users to benzodiazepines, so it does come up from time to time that you're using benzos and benzos and benzos, you're getting to escalating doses, and it just doesn't seem to be getting the job done. Phenobarbital has been shown in a couple of studies to decrease the need for ICU admissions, but it needs to be used early. This isn't a drug that's going to work in 5 to 10 minutes. It kind of needs to build up in the system before it's going to have an effect. Now, I don't typically use it as first line in all patients with withdrawal, but if I know that the patient has a complicated withdrawal history, they've required large benzo doses in the past, they've been intubated, then I reach for phenobarbital pretty early, pairing it with my benzodiazepine. Now, if the patient is failing escalating benzodiazepines and phenobarbital isn't cutting it, my next move is typically to paralyze, intubate, and put them on a propofol drip. In addition to all of the sedative hypnotic meds, we also have to make sure that the patient is volume replete and when needed to give them their vitamins, specifically thiamine and folate. These often get forgotten as we're focused on sort of the critical care and the withdrawal patient, but you got to give them. They're going to need these things. The, again, the electrolytes are going to be essential as well. Make sure you're checking potassium, checking magnesium, checking FOS and repleting those as needed. Now, Jenny, that's sort of a whirlwind brief tour of alcohol withdrawal, but let's hit our listeners with a couple of big take-home points. Yeah, so first, alcohol withdrawal can present in a variety of ways, from the classic withdrawal symptoms of tremulousness to seizures uh, to the basic alcohol hallucinosis or even delirium tremens. So be familiar with the variety of these presentations so you don't miss it. Second, severe withdrawal can have a high mortality. These patients need frequent reassessment and up titration of their benzos. You may be giving much higher doses of benzos than you have before, so familiarize yourself with your hospital's policy and get the ICU consultant on board as the patient may be headed their way. And then last, as always, you can call your tox consultant if you need some help. The poison center is there if you need them. Absolutely, those are great, and I think our local toxicologist can always be extremely helpful. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up this Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Visit us on Facebook if you like the site. Like us there. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Remember to pop on over to iTunes and give us a review. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, and we can improve and deliver you the knowledge that you need. Thanks, and see you all next week.